This is the Kinetic Concepts Podcast. On this episode, episode number three, we're going to discuss marksmanship in law enforcement, which is obviously a really big deal. Marksmanship in real life is by and large more difficult than what you are putting yourself through on a range environment. It's all on you to do the work to increase your skill. We just kind of went through the motions because we get, got compliance or whatever it is, and we essentially robbed ourselves of a rep. 118, We do currently have a pistol class, but I would say that that's not our primary focus right now. We're really focused on giving officers the process to complete tasks so the officer has an opportunity to arrive at the point where marksmanship matters. We do know, what we do know about police accuracy, we know based on several studies, there's actually been quite a few, most people probably don't know this, actually going back pretty far. But what we know is that in these studies, officers generally miss their target about half of the time, and when they do hit, they only hit with about 30% of the rounds they do fire. Of the most recent study, on police marksmanship accuracy was a study of the Dallas Police Department. That study was from 2003 to 2017. There were 231 total officer-involved shootings, but they only pulled data from 149 of those shootings based on a single officer, single suspect metric. During those 149 officer-involved shootings, officers fired 354 rounds. 50% of the time, officers hit the suspect with at least one round. Half of the time, they were entirely inaccurate with one officer firing 23 misses. 35% of the officers' rounds hit their target, and most of the officers that had perfect marksmanship only fired one round. So what that means is that although the quality of marksmanship training and frequency has increased over the years, the officer's ability to hit what they're actually intending to on the street has not. The journey to become the best marksmanship you can, marksman you can, is a personal one, and no one is really holding you accountable to that. Depending on the department or organization that you're assigned to, that standard is probably higher, but we're primarily talking about patrol officers and tactical officers that get likely the least amount of training. The reality is that the information to become a great marksman is already out there. It's on YouTube. It's on the Instagram. It's in in books. It's online. And the only missing component, component is likely your willingness to put in the work to get better. So my first experience really shooting pistols at all wasn't all that long ago. It was about nine years ago. I was a nuclear security officer at a power plant. So I was a glorified security guard and probably got better training than most police officers. But that was the first time I had ever really consistently shot a pistol and was also held accountable for scores and whatnot. And at that time, there were only iron sights. And so the things that were taught to me then in terms of marksmanship, fundamentals of marksmanship, are the same things that are taught now in relation to the fundamentals of marksmanship because they kind of don't change, right? It's a constant. The fundamentals, applying the fundamentals of marksmanship is a constant. There is basically the right way to do that. Now, along the way, through your journey and taking other classes and learning different things, you pick up on different aspects of applying the fundamentals that allows you to increase your speed without sacrificing accuracy. And... So the grip that I had nine years ago is not the same grip that I have today on my pistol, right? I've made some adjustments. I've learned some things, especially now with the red dot. That kind of changes, definitely changes some things, sight pictures, all that kind of stuff, right? And so that's where it started for me. And then going through the academy, uh, I think we had maybe 40 or 50 or so cadets in the class and I was the top shot in the class, which isn't really saying a whole lot because you have officers with a number of different experiences. Most of them never shot a gun before in their life. Um, And then after that, you know, obviously for the first couple years, at least just maintained the standard qualification score, went out and shot on my own. But then not, it wasn't until I started getting involved in maybe some more advanced assignments within the department that I actually 
started applying myself to learning how to apply the fundamentals of marksmanship at a high rate of speed without sacrificing accuracy. So one of the conversations that we have in our class, first thing when we start shooting simunition rounds at, at not even live people yet, just targets, is we talk about what is an acceptable hit on a target. And that's one of those things that I see when we have officers come to say the range and they're shooting at a target and, you know, let's use the VTAC target, for example. Those are the targets we use. We like those targets. Um, and we, what we like about those targets is the, you know, clearly identifiable upper A zone that, you know, holds, you know, the vital organs collectively, the lungs, the heart. And what we see sometimes with officers on the range is they're consistently not really hitting there, right? Maybe they're still even getting A zone hits, right? Because the A zone actually goes from, I think it's like the, top of the clavicle to the belly button maybe is technically the a zone um it's about i don't know 10 inches wide maybe or something like that the a zone or maybe it's six is it six i think it's six uh, maybe six inches so and and we're talking about consistently missing at distances where we should be still putting these rounds for sure in the upper a zone say 10 yards 15 yards under really no stress right we should be able to and so what we see is officers continuing to miss in certain areas and those officers just kind of accepting that as that's okay, right? And then we kind of, you know, personally go up to the officers like, hey, I want you to do this, right? <laughs> Literally just tell them what you want to see, and they just start doing it, right? And then we have the conversation there about why are you accepting anything other than this right here? So start holding yourself to these standards. But when we look at these targets in class and we, and we talk about what is acceptable, our personal belief is that the only thing that matters is hits in vital areas as quickly as possible. And our goal is to hit the upper A zone, right? So that is about the clavicle to maybe the bottom of the chest, essentially, is the upper A zone. And we explain why, you know, we, we want to hit people there. It's the collective collection of vital organs that lie there. If you can land around there, likely to incapacitate somebody pretty quickly and discourage them fairly quickly that they probably don't want to continue to do what they're doing. And so that's the idea. And that is our goal under all circumstances, being that target difficulty, target availability, distance, movement, right? But if we get into an engagement personally, and I do hit you know, this target, this person, in the upper A zone one time, and one of my rounds hits them in the belly button, that's a personal conversation that I'm going to have with myself about accountability and what happened there because that shouldn't have been the case. Now, maybe there's some contributing factors, you know, uh, but that is always the standard, right? Upper A zone all the time, as long as it's available for you to do that. So after we have that, that conversation, and we have that conversation up front, because if we don't, what we see is officers just accepting less from the very beginning. And when we allow them to accept less from the very beginning, we're just wasting simunition rounds and not getting the, the results that we're looking for anyways. And so we've decided, let's have that conversation first. And when we have that conversation first, what do we see? We see them actually trying to meet the standard, right? So I also think that it's important to acknowledge that marksmanship in real life under real circumstances with real implications is by and large more difficult than what you are putting yourself through in a range environment the vast majority of officers right and the vast majority of officers being qualification time right the idea that you might be faced with a target that is in any way shape or form similar to what you will experience out in the real world and a qualification is nowhere near what you can probably expect to see. You know, and I think most officers, most engagements, there's some movement involved, whether it's the officer, the suspect, there's some movement involved. And do officers, I mean, I know for sure in qualification, officers are not moving and shooting. And so if the only time that you're, move, you're, you're, you're shooting your gun is in qualification and you're not moving and shooting, that's likely not the situation that you're gonna find yourself in. And when we start adding these other variables, things start happening 
to our marksmanship. What would you say about the, maybe not the standard necessarily, to qualifications in general? Because I think they're different for different agencies. They have different standards. Um, but how does that standard translate to what an officer is expected to be encountered with in real life? Well, I mean, the standards, I mean, it's usually based off, you have like some sort of governing organization, like what it is, CLE, or not CLE, but uh, TCLO, and then I think other states have their own like state um, certification board, like uh, POST or you know, different states have different things, right? And each department, as long as they meet whatever that governing body has, they may have stricter or harder standards that they can add on it as long as they don't take away from what the overall governing governing body has. But you have to have, if, if it's a large agency, I mean, everybody's got to qualify. Um, so what they base the qualification on is like a, a kind of like the minimum so that, that people everybody across the board on a department could strive to qualify to, to achieve and that in in itself is not it's not uh you know reality as far as <clears throat> what you're going to experience in a real engagement it's not going to be, you know, most, you know, speed. There, the three elements of every, you know, gunfight, so to speak: speed, accuracy, and movement. And well, we already just said, you know, most quals that we've seen and been been a part of, there there's no movement. So you're already taking um, one of the factors that's in every gunfight away in your qualification. Um, and then in some quals, I know quals have changed over the years; have gotten better the necessity to train for your individuals in your within your organization, right? Like if you have someone who is a high level shooter on their own, um, goes in and, and does this qual that's at a, a lower level than what their skill set is, then there's no incentive for them other than personal accountability to go and to continue to try to find training because they can already achieve what they need to achieve, right? But then you see once you start getting to these specialized units, um you know, you have a quarterly qualification that's a little bit harder. And then once you get to, like, your SWAT teams and things like that, you have qualifications that are even harder than that. And so I think that it's important that we have those and that they're not just your base level, that they are a little bit difficult comparatively to, to what your assignment is so that it does force your individuals to continue to try to strive to, to get better. It's not just something that's easily attainable that they can just go and mail it in once a year, you know. I also think that it, we can't continue to put all the ownership of that aspect of policing on the off individual officer. Because as soon as you allow them to make their own choices about what they're willing to put themselves through, I mean, we just know that they just generally don't do it, right? So go out and get more training or go out and become the best marksmanship that they can. So if really there is going to be any change just in terms of I would say under even just range conditions, seeing better results, it's going to have to be done and implemented by the organization, right? Supplying the ammo, allotting the time, et cetera, which is something that we don't really, or we definitely don't have any control over, right? So whether or not that happens. But if you are on the range and you are only exposing yourself to those range conditions of marksmanship, you need to understand that what you are accomplishing, you are only accomplishing under those conditions in that environment where everything is in your favor, right? Yeah. And and the target availability that you have is the best you'll probably right. ever have, right? And so that's where it becomes really important to understand what you're willing to accept based on time, distance, target availability, right, on the range. Because if you are consistently dropping rounds at 10 yards and you're trying to, let's just say, hit a three-inch circle at slow fire, 10 yards, 10 rounds, okay? And you're consistently missing, missing it all. <laughs> missing it all is a harder problem to solve, or missing all over the place is a harder problem to solve. 
But if you're if you're consistently missing in a certain you know direction, you know all my rounds are low left. Okay. At ten yards, this is what's happening to your rounds, right? You're missing three inches to the left. Okay. Well, what's happening now when you're at fifteen? What's happening when you're at twenty-five? And what is happening is that likely those are completely missing the target. And you need to understand that. Now, if nothing else, if you can't put in the time and the effort to figure it out to get better, to make it work, then again, at least you have the information to know maybe you shouldn't shoot that fast from this far away um, at this, you know, real in this real life situation because those rounds are going to maybe go not where you expect them to go, right? And what, what is your experience with your marksmanship, like where it started, how you came through it, what you've learned, things you picked up on, all that? As far as pistol? Pistol, know. yeah, let's go with pistol. Well, you know, in my time in the military, I mean, <clears throat> I was in a position where a pistol was issued to me. Um, I was a sniper and in in an army we have a term called MTO. Basically it's like a a standard standardization of what, you know, equipment and weapons are issued to certain positions and whatnot. And I had a pistol um issued to me, but as far as like training goes and what I didn't we I mean I didn't get any I, I had some blocks of instruction on pistol in the military, but it was uh very um, very small. Um, I didn't really get really into the pistol work until, you know, uh, joining up with the police department and that started at the academy. Um, and then from there, it, uh, that was, that was the base of my pistol marksmanship was, it started at the academy and what they taught back then from what I remember, it was more, you know, accuracy focused, uh, slow fire, um, not a lot of, uh, you know, the time aspect wasn't of any uh, urgency or any uh, difficulty. Um, but then as my time on the department uh, increased and being in situations, you know, obviously, uh, you know, you learn that, you know, time is, uh, you know, speed, time is one of the main factors and so you know a lot of my development in pistol pistol marksmanship and gun handling stemmed from failure um on the range or whatnot I, I was like hey i'm you know not i'm not meeting the standards i'm not uh doing what I need to do. I, I wasn't failing any quals or anything, but I wasn't rising to the occasion that I, I needed to be in that I, I held for myself. So I looked elsewhere and, uh, you know, it's all out there. And I basically in the last five years, I've developed, you know, a great deal of skill just by, um, I've taken a few classes, but um, a lot of the information is out there um, on the on the YouTube, on the internet, and all that good stuff. And what really the game changer for me a while a long time ago was learning how to properly dry fire, and that increased my gun handling gun handling skills and marksmanship tremendously. Just dry firing on my own time, consistently throughout the week, every week. Um, that's where I've, you know, developed my skill and actually, uh, looking at like guys that are in the practical world that are shooting, you know, in competitions for a livelihood, you know, they're putting out all the information necessary out for free and it's all on you to do the work to increase your skill. So, I mean, that's where, that's where I got all my. Um, it's where I'm at now. You know, I'm still on the journey. We're still all on the journey to increase that skill, but there's another aspect to it. In the military, it was zero, almost zero, very small. I used a pistol to go to the chow hall instead of carrying, like, a long rifle, you know, but we didn't shoot. I didn't take it out on mission. I would 
leave my pistol in the chew or whatever and carry another rifle and have my long gun on my back. Get to the police department. That's where that's your primary as a patrol officer. That's your primary weapon for most cases is your, is your pistol. Now when you get on specialized units, you're able to your rifle is more of your primary weapon than your pistol. But as a patrol officer, your pistol is your primary weapon for most cases. Yeah, yeah. What about your uh, experience with pistols and pistols? Um, so my grandfather was in law enforcement growing up. Uh, so I mean, as a kid, you know, we had some property out out in the country that we would go and shoot, and I mean, just very basic. It was never really anything that was intensive. It was basically just side picture, side alignment, and then trying to manipulate the trigger as smooth as possible, which I wouldn't say it was specific to pistols for me. It was more so like deer hunting and stuff like that. But you use some pistols just kind of out messing around. And then I um, I purchased a handgun when I was in college um, and did a little bit of, I mean, wouldn't necessarily was tra- say it was training, but I would go to the range and shoot and try to figure out, you know, what I was doing. And then you go to the police department and then you know, realize that what I was doing is just like completely wrong. And, uh, and it was kind of, it was kind of cool because, you know, you, you shoot as a civilian and you, you know, you're, you're hitting the target. So you're like, oh yeah, like I'm a good shot. And then you go to the police department and you start to actually kind of hone in on what actually needs to be done to be proficient and to repeat it over and over again. And just seeing like how your groups tighten up once you kind of get it is, is pretty cool. Uh, but that was really like, I had very minimal exposure to handguns until I joined the police department. Um, and then just like, like Jake said, Jake kind of went down a rabbit hole of his own personal accord, uh, as far as going through all the information. And I was fortunate enough that I was his partner. So he kind of would give me the nuggets of wisdom that he, you know, found through his journey, uh, to help kind of increase my own proficiency. So I kind of piggybacked off of him a little bit. Did you say that your grandpa taught you the fundamentals of pistol marksmanship? Is that accurate? I would say, yeah. Uh, and, and my dad, too. My dad was in the military. Um, so just both of them just kind of. But, like, I remember distinctively as, like, a six-year-old, I had, like, a Red Rider BB gun, and I was out in the backyard and learning how to sight alignment, sight picture, and to squeeze a trigger. And then that's just kind of, like, over time you know, your grip changes and things like that, but just the basics. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, the credit should go to whoever taught you the fundamentals of marksmanship. Right. So for you, it was your dad and it was your grandpa. I'd say for me, it was some security guards. (laughs) Okay. And then after that though, like I already said, it's building on what you already know. Right. And essentially you be if you get into it and it's something that you're doing, you kind of become self-taught, right? And so you could go to classes and you could pick things up from certain people. And it wasn't even all that long ago that I, I learned something about my grip that I started implementing, right? So that was maybe six, seven months ago. But even though somebody is, hey, try this, or you see it online, or um, you you go to a class and you learn something, whether or not you apply the thing that you've learned to that skill is entirely up to you, right? And that becomes your uh, your personal goal at applying the fundamentals of marksmanship. We talk about this a lot where you may not get everything out of a training, right? Like a lot of times you go to a training course and you just fire hose of information. And we talk about this where our goal is to try to pull something, at least one thing away from a training that you found valuable that you can then implement into your day-to-day routine or or your marksmanship process or whatever it might be. Um, And especially with hanging classes, you know, it it may be just a tweak to your grip and, oh man, that really solved this problem that I was having where I was missing low left or whatever it might be. So. Yeah. And we had talked about this, about courses, and and I've heard in the past people, officers, 
attribute a training course, a training course to something that they were able to accomplish out in the real world in an engagement. And if you are already an officer who has a, I'd say just say an advanced level of skill, like you sign up for the class yourself and you've, you're already, you're looking for that one thing, you know, then maybe that's the case. But if so much time has passed between when you took the class and, and, and you've literally not implemented that thing at all, because that's, and, and the, that's the conversation we had about going to trainings is it's only valuable if you decide to keep practicing it. And, and so I just think that aspect of, I think there's some accolades maybe involved in that where an officer maybe goes to a class and, and, and learns something, especially when we're talking about pulling the trigger. And, and then something happens several months later and they attribute what they learned in the class. I kind of find that a difficult concept to really understand. Um, especially in that moment, are you thinking about that, that one thing that you learned and you haven't done it since then? And, you know, you had gone through a rifle class and we talked about the things that you learned in there, the things that you picked up and you had learned and how much time has been since that class, you think? Two months, maybe? Yeah, maybe. So maybe two months. I think at the time it was maybe a month. I talked to you, you know, um, again after you had already gone to the class, but I talked to you again about it. And the, the thing that I asked you is, of the officers that were in that, how many were in that class? 12, maybe? Yeah, maybe. 12 officers in that class. How many of those officers do you think have consistently um, been applying anything that they learned from that class since then? And the answer is probably close to zero, right? And so that's how you get good and build proficiency at tactics, at marksmanship, is consistently doing it over and over again and being able to replicate the results. Now there are things, again, that you can learn, that you can really make the adjustment and not have to, that, that will actually help you in assisting you in getting to marksmanship that won't um, take necessarily training per se. So we talked about sling adjustments on your rifle and marking your sling. If you choose to use your sling for applying the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship and under certain circumstances, um, one thing that we had talked about is marking your sling so that you can get that quick adjustment right to where you like it. Um, if you have to go, maybe the sling's around your neck, now it's around your body and you want to use it for some type of support to pull the rifle into your body. That's something that you could do and not really train all that much and get it done, right? Because you're already doing it. It's just you're not, by not marking your sling, you're essentially maybe not getting predictable results with your sling in that manner, right? Um, you know, another thing that, you, you know, you could visually, see if, it's, if the officer has no baseline understanding for what you're teaching at all, you know, and that's usually the case in our class, cops aren't doing this, the high-risk vehicle encounters tactic at all. So when you come to the class, and again, it's just like any other class course though, if you don't continue to apply the things that you're learning after the class is over with, chances are you're not gonna get predictable outcomes. But if you do come to the class and you do understand the idea and you do apply yourself and you do get into that situation, I mean, we could literally look at the body camera and see if it was of assistance to you and you could attribute what happened to, hey, I took this class and I got into this thing and you know, it helped me under this situation, right? So in one of the classes that we took from a competitive shooter, he talked about two different types of how he views two different types of targets. And he talked about an attack target and he talked about a control target. You want to talk about those two types of targets? Yeah. Um, so I'm not, I'm not putting using his exact verbiage, but an attack target is in a sense, like a throwaway target, something that's perceived a pretty, it's pretty close, you know, and you don't, as far as like your level of confirmation, as far as like your visual piece on what you need to achieve to get the acceptable hits, you can achieve pretty fast and um, fast and accurately. And those are your, you know, your generally speaking, your closer targets. Now for these professional shooters, these guys that are competing on a regular basis uh, at the highest levels, their definition of an attack target is completely different from 
you know, your average shooter. They can get away. They can use a firing solution for an attack target for something that I would consider a control target. Um, but a control target for the, like the average person would probably be like when you start getting out past, you know, 12, 15 yards, those are starting to turn into more of a control target, especially like 20, 25 yards. Those are control targets, um, depending on size. Um, but, uh, like your attack targets are your close in, you know, three to 10 yards, um, with a pistol, you know, obviously, but, um, but basically like a, in your aiming scheme for an attack target and there's different levels of confirmation, like I said. So for an example, a, a attack target, you may only need like the outline. This is like the bear, like what some I'm, different people have different ways of describing it, but like level, they have like three different levels of um, aiming schemes or levels of confirmation for like a three yard target. They may only need like the outline of their gun center mass of the target. And they know what their training and exp experience, they're going to achieve the hits that they need for that target. Now for a 25 yard popper that's out there, so to speak, that they may need to confirm that their dot is exactly where it needs to be in a more controlled trigger press to the rear. Um, so that's that's the basics, the difference between an attack and control. So we know that the average patrol officer doesn't understand that concept or idea. And like you said, different instructors will explain exactly what you explained in a different way, and they'll use different terminologies to explain how they perceive targets and how they choose to engage those targets. But the reality is that pretty much every cop on the street is attacking everything. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of different th reasons why and factors that go into that. But under most situations, they shouldn't be attacking. And not only are they attacking, but they're not even attacking when they're training. Like when they, if they are the officer that only shoots, like when they qual every year, that qualification, most qualifications don't even have a scenario set up where you're actually like attacking a target. It's, you know, uh, well, that, the first scenario may be the close target where from the draw, they may have like a quick time standard where that target's facing and then, it un, you know, it faces a different direction. So, that you, yeah, that's an attack target, but. As far as like what they're doing on the street, it, and what they're doing in training, for the most part, uh, you don't see anybody training in an attack method in their training, and then they're doing it on the street, and the and then the results are apparent. You know, like you know, low hit rates and everything like that. They're not making. They're not even on the street and making a conscious decision to attack the target. Right. Yeah. It's in unconscious you emotional no, it's an emotional decision being made with gunfire an unconscious emotional decision being made with gunfire that doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with the fundamentals of marksmanship and so we've seen videos where cops are performing outside of their expectations right mm-hmm it's clearly obvious based on their shooting cadence, target difficulty, distance, movement, all of these factors that they are trying to accomplish something that I would argue the best shooters in the world couldn't accomplish if the standard is accurate rounds in vital areas as quickly as possible with a high degree of accountability and the acceptable part of the target being the upper A zone if it's available. And so obviously the faster we shoot, the more we shoot the, from the farther distance, especially when we're talking about not on the range under uh, other conditions, we're gonna start dropping rounds. If we're not completely missing, then we're not hitting likely in the acceptable target area if that's our standard. And the statistics clearly show that that is the case. So. We're attacking all targets no matter what, unconsciously, 
really, because of the physiological responses to stress. And so, as I was talking about in the beginning, we understand how important marksmanship is, but we also understand that the vast majority of cops aren't getting there, right? They're not getting to the point where marksmanship matters. Right. And so, we have to, and, and, and what we're doing is develop a way to get officers to focus on marksmanship, right? To have that at the forefront of your thought when it's time to make that thing happen. Now there's a lot of things that go into that, right? Having a process for things, and we talk about that in the class, allows you to not have to think about how you're going to do this thing because you already have that foundation in place. And what we talk about is tactics running in the background, right? Un and under our circumstances and the tactics that we use, you know, if there's time to coordinate it, whether it's pre-planned or it's on the fly, that's better because we already know what we're expecting to see and what's going to happen. And most police officers on the street don't have a process for how they do pretty much anything tactically, right? And obviously, again, the more things that you can develop a process for, the less you have to think about. And the example that I use is as a police officer on the street, you shouldn't be thinking about the process for drawing your gun out of your holster. I know for us, that's a conscious decision that's made. The decision's made in our mind, and then we just move to go to it, and everything else falls into place. You know, now we're talking about grip, right? You know, finding the dot, if that's what we need to, need to do. But we're not thinking about how do we detach or how do we defeat the locking mechanism on our holster, and how do we, like, we should, that should not be any part of your thought process. I think for most cops, it's probably not. But that also translates to pretty much everything else that you're doing, like moving to cover, right? Communicating with other people. One of the big things that we do is that we've developed certain words or phrases that we use under pretty much all circumstances that are short, clear, and concise that mean a very specific thing, whereas most police officers are essentially saying a whole lot in a situation that doesn't require you to say a whole lot. And when you're thinking about what you're saying and you're stringing these long sentences together in these emotional, high-stress situations, you start to complicate things. Because now you're not thinking about your actions and all the other things that we should be thinking about. You're thinking about what you're actually saying and how it's coming out. And we know we've seen cops say things on body cameras because of the physiological responses to stress that make no sense, right? And from our own experiences, you know, watching body cameras, we get in, you get into these incidents, high stress, high stimulus incidents, you think that you said something that you never said. You think that you did something you never actually did. And that's those physiological responses happening that are clouding your judgment, so to speak, and are preventing you from executing the process that you need to in order to arrive at the point where marksmanship matters. So let's come up with some things that we can, we can give officers that requires no money, okay? But it does require you some thought and it does require some of your time, right? Because that's probably the biggest factor for cops is the money side of it. Location is a big deal. I mean, you know, indoor range is probably, they don't allow you, afford you the opportunity to really do the things that you maybe should be doing. So you already mentioned some dry fire, dry fire things. So if you want to go over a few. I mean, that's the, my, in my opinion, probably the, the easiest and biggest thing you can do to improve your, not only your gun handling, everything, marksmanship, but you, you need a process and you need a plan and you need, you need to understand how to properly do it. And, and it's a, it's a, if, and it only takes, you know, 10 minutes. If you, the key, just like working out, just like the fitness world, you need to have some sort of consistency and you need to have a plan and for each dry fire session that you do. It could be just five minutes in the morning or five minutes before you go to bed or whatever it is. Whenever you find time, you have time five to 10 minutes out of your day. If not more, the merrier. But I mean, you can overdo it 
just like you can in, when you're working out. But dry fire, it's from what I've learned, you need to consciously be aware of how you're doing it and what you're doing and and work on specific skills, whether it be coming out of the holster, um, you know, uh, having a, a proper grip, uh, working the trigger, and there are different methods and skills that you can do in dry fire. So for me, the biggest thing that I've learned is like the problem I had with um, my dry fire pr um, program was not necessarily holding the weapon like consciously, like like how I would if I, were, I knew I had a live round in the chamber and we're about to fire it. So your grip, like you can get complacent and just hold a weapon and point it at like a spot, like a you know light switch on the wall or whatever. You know, make sure your weapon's clear and all that. But you know, you see a you have a target in your house, and you're just holding the weapon up. You're getting a good sight picture and you're pulling the trigger, and you're not really necessarily holding the weapon like you need to be, like as if you were when you would if you were actually firing live ammo and consciously thinking about that when you go through like a 10 minute dry fire session you should be mentally and physically smoked like you should be gripping that gun like you were like you are if you're about to get in an engagement you should be given all conscious thought and whatever it is that you're working on and actually being honest of what with what you're seeing if you have a dot and you're pulling the trigger and if you have a glock and you put the little piece of paper behind the barrel and you have the full throw of the trigger, you're holding the weapon properly, you're, you know, you have a small target, whatever it is that you're shooting at at whatever distance or whatever scale it is, and you're actually, like, giving thought and visually looking at what your dot's doing as you're pulling that trigger. And that's giving, it's going to give you a lot of feedback and hold yourself to accountability. That's the biggest thing that I've learned in my draw fire program is, actually like consciously like giving thought to what my grip is to what the dot is doing or my iron my front sight's doing that's and then just doing that like five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day and then as you get more obsessed with it or make it more of a priority you can increase that and build on build on it using a using a shot timer that's a big uh big one in your draw fire program not only draw fire but when you're out on the range on your own program like shooting live ammo is having a timer you know having some sort of accountability what your speed what your time looks like um your splits and uh coming out of the holster from coming out of the holster to a perfect sight picture what time like how fast can you do that in consistently on demand and then pressing yourself and you know to failure and then backing it up to where you're back at where whatever your control speed up is, and then constantly like working on that speed aspect. But yeah, I'm at, I, I can go further, but I won't. So there, there's this statistic that I heard that if you spend eight, I think it was 18 minutes, 18 minutes a day doing any skill for a whole year, you will be better than 95% of the population in that skill set that spend less time than that. It's not a lot of time, 18 minutes. You know, maybe do an hour one day and that that's two days, two <laughs> days, whatever that is, you know, I mean. Consistency is, yeah. Consistency, but but make it work for you too, right? Yeah. I mean, we're not telling you you have to absolutely have to do it 10 minutes, 18 minutes a day. If you can't do it that day or whatever, then push yourself for an hour, right? How often are patrol officers conducting felony stops? For us, it's, it's pretty frequent. Um, and something that we noticed ourselves because we were at the time when we were all working together, we were doing a lot like I would say what three to three to four a week probably. And something that we noticed after we would come back and kind of hot wash everything is like, okay, well, you know, we're, we're going through this rep. We're filling out a form. Literally it says we're pointing our weapon at someone, but did we ever actually find our sights? No, we didn't. We just kind of went through the motions because we get, got compliance or whatever it is, and we essentially robbed ourselves of a rep, a real-world rep, where you are actually, in this moment, you're 
feeling these responses to stress because you're in a real world scenario and you had the chance to get a rep and find your dot on a, on a suspect that you're justifiably able to point your gun at already. Yeah. And that you are literally filling out form and documentation saying that you're doing this, but you're not actually getting the rep. And so it's something that we talked about amongst ourselves. And so it's a very simple thing, but just doing it and you're in the moment. Okay. Uh, guys, you know, X in the vehicle. Okay. I'm up. I got my dot on him. Okay. And then, okay. He's compliant. I might come, come down, come back up, come down, come back up just to, to work on getting that sight picture. Like you're like, you would need to, if you're going to get into an engagement and we talked about, that's the habituation process of it is okay. All these factors are present and I'm going through the, the motions and going through the process of what actually needs to be done. So whenever it actually has to happen, I've already gotten all these reps at it. And I think that that's an important conversation that we have in both of our classes because what we require is honesty from the officers because we don't, we can't build real information on real results if you're just not being honest about what you did and what you saw. And that's another issue in it all and of itself entirely in law enforcement, not being honest with yourself, you know, perpetuating that you can, you know, completed something that was unrealistic for you to do anyways. Um, but, you know, I would just say this, if you're an officer and you are documenting whatever documentation that is required of you or that you are, that you had pointed your, your firearm at this person. Think about the most recent incidents that you were in where this was the case, felony stop, wanted fugitive, foot pursuit, whatever. And ask yourself if you did that. And I would almost guarantee you the answer is no. And I know that because we did it for several years and it, I, I, caught myself and I thought, well, this doesn't, you know, I kind of just made the connection myself. and said, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. You know, <laughs> why would I waste this opportunity that I have? And not just that process, but that is something that you can do also on your own that requires you no money, no time. You're already there. You're already doing it right. Get that rep in. And then also what the whole goal of that though is you might be doing that on a felony stop where the, the car is pulled over. You know the guy is wanted for a felony. And so what is the physiological response to stress in that situation? What, what, how elevated are you? Is it really adrenaline? I would say no. Like It's pretty low to none in those situations. And so what you're going to do is you're going to go out there, and, and if you decide that this is something that you want to do, you're going to forget. You're going to go through two or three incidents, maybe the first one, and then you're going to go, oh, yeah, right? And so... You're going to start thinking about it sooner, but not right away, right? So you're going to stop a car person. You're going to say, oh, I need to point my gun at this guy. You're going to revert back to what you were doing, just pointing your gun at him. And then somewhere in that process, it might be several seconds. It might be several minutes, depending on what he's doing. You're going to go, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be doing this thing. And then you're going to catch yourself, and then you're going to start doing it. And then you keep reminding yourself over and over again until you get to the point where you're in a situation that goes from zero to a hundred, you're elevated and you're there. It's going to take time. Like I said, the process is you're not doing it all. You're reminding yourself, okay, three minutes into it. I remembered. Okay. I'm doing it two minutes into it. Okay. I remembered 30 seconds. Oh, I remembered until you get to the point where the guy's running, he has a gun and then you're right there. And then it, that's just one piece of the puzzle that if you can continuously do that and apply that, the chances of you actually getting to the point where marksmanship matters is going to be greater, right? And so because of these 50% completely missing, 30 to 35% of the time, or 30 to 35% of our rounds are actually even hitting the person at all, that is more so to do with the physiological responses to stress under most circumstances. And if we're pointing the gun and pulling the trigger as fast as we can, we're not necessarily, how can we factor in marksmanship, right? If you pointed the gun at 25 yards at something that was moving, let's say on the range and the target's moving laterally, it's a fully available target. And you say, hey, just point your gun, pull the trigger as fast as you can. And we went and looked at the, char the target and there was a couple rounds on the target maybe. How can we make that person better at applying the fundamentals of marksmanship? There's not a whole lot to evaluate there. You kind of did something that didn't afford you the opportunity to get to where you needed to be, right? And so 
you know, that's primarily the videos that you see on the YouTube channel is critiquing those types of law enforcement engagements. And the most recent one, you know, that you see is the guys maybe seven yards and these rounds are hitting the ground three, four feet in front of the guy. You know, that's, what is that? Is that marksmanship? I mean, you're, you're pointing your gun and pulling the trigger. And actually a lot of those were one-handed, right? Which is a whole nother problem in and of itself. So that's why we are primarily focused on getting officers to the point where marksmanship matters because we believe that if we can get you in these moments to actually find your sights, to find your dot, you are going to make decisions with gunfire based on what you see, right? That, to me, is a very realistic expectation. If the target is 20 yards away, he's running laterally and he's shooting at you, and we can get you to actually find your sights, I think that you are going to shoot at this target or this person with a higher degree of accountability because you are going to see this thing happening, superimposed, however you want to put it, on the bad guy, and you're going to make decisions with gunfire that make sense to your sight alignment and your sight picture, which is not going to be pulling the trigger as fast as you can and going through 17 rounds as quickly as possible. So one of the things that I had mentioned was another issue, which is cops shooting one-handed a lot, okay? When we, when we get cops on the range, and I do this too, okay, because I hate it, <laughs> is, you know, we actually just did this a couple days ago, and it was shooting at these one-inch circles from 10 yards. And right, you know, strong hand, good. As soon as I put that gun in my weak hand, oh, <laughs> it's shaking. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, and I was able to get them really close. It wasn't crazy, but um, that's not something that I'm strong at doing. So even in myself, as soon as I'm, that's what we're told where you have to do. I'm like, ah, crap. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so when we get officers on the range, strong hand, even one handed, that's their same mentality and mindset is like, oh, like, oh man, really? We got to do this? Shield work. Right. With, With the shield too. And so what cops do on the range is they're, telling themselves and everybody else with their behavior, their attitude, like, this sucks. I don't want to have to do this. Um, And then they do it, and maybe they're okay, right, or whatever. But then they get out onto the street, and they just completely decide that that's what they want to dedicate to is shooting one-handed. And, you know, my belief is that you should only shoot with one hand on your pistol in acts of desperation, which is you are in such close proximity to a person, maybe you're using your other hand to disengage, or it's such close proximity that maybe you're making a contact shot or something, um, or your one of your hands is incapacitated and you cannot literally grab the gun with two hands. And so what are some of the situations that you see cops shooting one-handed? What are they doing usually? Have their radio in their hand or a mic, or they're just doing something in general with this other, like, feel... 80% of the videos that we watch where a guy is shooting one-handed, it's because he's on the radio on the other hand and something happens in front of him where his only reaction is to start dumping. And, I mean, you are the one that breaks down hits and stuff on these videos. Its hit rate is abysmal. And then so we're factoring in not only are you not finding your sights, typically anyways two-handed <laughs> under a high-stress situation, but now we're factoring in the fact that you're just, you have one hand on your pistol. Which degrades your ability to apply marksmanship no matter what, right? And also mentally, you're probably not even, you're not even thinking about what it is that you're doing. You're thinking about whatever the radio transmission is that you're putting out. Are you even consciously thinking about finding your, your sights as you're pulling the trigger? I, I think you're probably not. Yeah, and it, it's, it's if, I, if I see a video and from, I don't know what's happened yet. I haven't watched it yet. I watch it from the beginning of where at least the body camera starts. And the, one of the videos I did recently in, in the Dallas, the very first thing the officer does when he cracks open his door, steps out one-handed, like done sideways, left hand, and I immediately know that what I'm about to see is going to be unacceptable. I just know. And, you know, that's a sign of things to come. And, and there's a lot of things that cops do in these videos that you can just pause it and be like, okay, um, this, this is what's going to happen, right? So they're, they're on the radio, usually with one hand. Get a whisper mic. Understand when it makes sense for you to be on the radio and when it doesn't. 
a lot of times there's multiple officers there, right? So everybody you need to solve the problem is right there with you. There isn't necessarily a reason for you to get on the radio right now. We talked about in episode two about be, having a maturity and seeing the bigger picture and, and, and coming off the gun to be that person that can make those communications, right? And maybe the situation allows for it, maybe it doesn't, right? But there's a time and a place to use your radio. Get a, get a whisper mic. Get a lapel mic. I think LAPD, for whatever reason, has some, um, not policy, but I, I've heard it's a, um, what is it, like over time, like develop SOP. No, not SOP. Um, tradition. They, they have a tradition, I, this is what I was told, that they don't use the handheld uh, mics and the whisper mics. They use just the radio, right? So a lot of their shootings, the officer's on the radio with one hand pointing a gun with the other hand. And we typically don't drop what's in our hand when it's time to engage, although we probably should, right? Another situation where cops have two things in their hand where it's unnecessary is a handheld light and a pistol. Or, and and, and they have a handheld light in one hand. They're pointing the pistol at the bad guy in the other hand. It's dark. They've decided to point their pistol at the person, and they have a weapon-mounted light, okay? When I see that happening usually one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to shoot one-handed or you're going to end up trying to grab your pistol with another light in your hand and you're not going to get the grip that you're, you're hoping to get. A lot of times they end up shining the light at themselves. And so that's another situation. So your radio, figure out a way to streamline your radio, communicate, have the communication done. If it's truly an emergency, know where your emergency button is. I don't know how it works all over the country, but if we hit our emergency button, it's like 10 seconds, right? Yeah, just straight 10 seconds. I'll just broadcast whatever's going on. So that's something that I ingrained in myself. I knew I had two emergency buttons, right? Lapel mic and on my radio, I knew where those buttons were and lived and I didn't have to look. And so if I was finding myself in that confrontation and I needed to talk and concentrate or at least just let it know, because the emergency button being hit is an indicator that you're having a problem, right? So you don't necessarily need to even say what's happening, right? I mean, they're going to hear things happening and they're going to say, hey, start sending units over this direction. And so that's an option for you, right? Hit your emergency button, get both hands on your pistol. If you're giving commands, you hit your emergency button, you're giving commands, get down, get down, get down. That's a real good indication. One, you have a problem. And two, you're trying to deal with the problem. So people are going to come to where you are as quickly as possible. Did you have anything you, you were going to add? Uh, as far as... Uh and also in those situations, like guys are running, there's a lot of movement, and I mean, you're not getting hit by the gunfire. Having that discipline, and it goes back to accountability. Like you may not need, or you shouldn't even engage. Having that maturity and that discipline to know what you're actually capable of, and in the moment, you know, uh, deciding to shoot or not to shoot. That's very important, you know, as a professional. Yeah. I also think that, and, and to add on to what you said, that, that lead, you know, that also validates the idea that cops are attacking when they shouldn't be attacking. And there are some situations that I know of through body cams online where there isn't necessarily, like, it's justifiable in terms of just an immediate threat of serious bodily injury or death. We, we got that part. But what is happening literally right now at this very second when you're deciding to pull the trigger that is making you want to pull the trigger as fast as you're pulling it, right? And there were several videos that I did where the bad guy is running away with a gun, right? And I'm not talking about legal ideas here or justification. I'm talking about why are you pulling the trigger as fast as you can at a moving target that's running away from you, he's facing the other direction, right? And so if you feel like that's something that you need to do in that situation, like find your shot and take your shot. You shouldn't be amped up. You know, the guy's not pointing the gun at you or anybody else, right? So you should be able to make that decision. Another thing that officers do all the time is they intentionally place themselves in the kill zone, out in the open with nowhere to go, and then what happens when somebody starts pointing a gun, when somebody starts shooting at you, the physiological responses to stress take over, that makes it more difficult for you to be able to engage the target. One of the videos I did, the officers left their vehicle and, and approached a guy that they knew was shooting. 
they already had their guns drawn, and he was in in an open volley, sand volleyball like area at a park. And so they left their vehicles to approach this guy to walk onto the sand to get within 15 yards of him, and then he shoots at them, and then one cop ends up shooting one-handed and trying to get the hell out of there. And all of those things that you just did made marksmanship more difficult, right? And the likelihood of you saying, oh, this guy's shooting at me. Oh, this guy's pointing a gun at me. Let me take a good stance and uh, apply fundamentals of marksmanship. The likelihood of you doing that is extremely small, and it might not even make sense for you to do that. It might make more sense for you to get out of the way, right? And so I think, you know, in the high-risk vehicle encounters class, we talk a lot about vehicles, and we had this conversation about vehicles the other day, and, you know, I think there's a lot of, I would say hate necessarily, on, on vehicles in general, like, we understand that vehicles are coffins, right? Like you don't want to be inside them when gunfire is happening at all. But I think they're also kind of viewed in some aspects as a, um, a hindrance, right? And they are a hindrance, right? It's a barrier between you and the guy. And if you need to go right now and you're still sitting down, that's a problem. We understand that. But, you know, there's get out, get away, right, from your vehicle. But at the same time, that vehicle is the w- one of the constants that you always have as an officer, on the street. So I think it's really important for you to be able to understand, you know, what you're able to accomplish in that vehicle, in and around that vehicle, and that may be the best choice for you, right? And that's kind of how we view that is this is what we know right now is that we have this available to us. So let's try to use it in the best way that we possibly can. And there's obviously different ways, you know, to go about doing that. But again, you know, some of the things remain constant. We know that what I tell the students and in, in, in different agencies and different vehicles have different ballistic protection, I believe. I don't even know what that is. And that I don't even know if the officer in the vehicle knows whether he has it or not. Right. And so what we do is a lot of unmarked vehicle type stuff where we don't have, we know we don't have that opportunity. And for me, I like to try to remain in as many constants as possible all the time that way I don't have to change up my decision-making process right and so that's one of those things that I do is I use my vehicle in the same way every single time when I'm dealing with the bad guy which is put as much of the vehicle between me and the bad guy as possible regardless of the type of vehicle that I'm in now I'm not talking about armored vehicles that you know are fully capable of you know accepting whatever is about to happen but patrol vehicles unmarked vehicles We don't teach you to stand at the pillar, you know, behind your vehicle door, you know, because we don't know what kind of protection that is. And like I said, you probably don't know either. And so that's just one of those things. You know, the vehicle is one of those things that is a constant, regardless of how you view the vehicle. And so that's why it's important for you to know all the little intricate details about being able to not just survive an encounter from your vehicle, but win one i would also say this so we have dry fire right doesn't cost you anything you can go on youtube you can find out all the information you need to know the other thing that i would tell you is and some of the things that he talked about in dry fire you're going to be able to identify and it should translate to the range but when you do get to the range whenever that is qualification or not you need to analyze what it is you're doing and understand the distance that you're doing it at, the target difficulty that you're faced with, and figure out a way to accept less on the target, right? And if you don't have the time or you're putting in the work and you're not seeing the results that you're looking for, you need to understand what you're capable of accomplishing. And like we talked about, if it's outside of your capabilities, it's okay to say, well, I just didn't shoot because he was running and I didn't have it, you know? Um, that's what we would like to see versus officers getting involved when there's really no reason for them to get involved, right? Work within what you know you're capable of accomplishing. You can build what you're capable of accomplishing based on your experiences and your training, and that's basically the only way, right? There's some drills. You know, we didn't get really into drills or anything like that, but you know, drills are there, you know, the marksmanship side of it 
they're, they're there for a specific reason to identify deficiencies in certain things, right? So you, as the individual shooter, need to understand what the purpose is of the drill and understand that this drill is a drill. This drill is not necessarily a shooting cadence that is even makes sense in real life. And I think that that is just something that I've seen is an officer, an officer will be involved in an engagement and they, you know, it goes kind of online or whatever. And from that engagement, we take away a drill and say, hey, look, this is where this drill, you could have accomplished this drill in real life. But what we don't know is where the officer hit this guy, right? Like we know the end result, the guy, you know, was killed, but we don't know like the three of those rounds going to the house, you know? So is the conversation, hey, get better at this drill or is the conversation, get your hit assessed, get your hit assessed, get your hit assessed, right? And, and some of the videos that we put out there on Instagram that, you, that you've seen is that if you're making that first round count, the behavior and attitude of the bad guy is likely to significantly change in a very short period of time, right? Thanks for listening to the Kinetic Concepts podcast, episode number three. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, Kinetic Concepts underscore group, or on YouTube, Kinetic Concepts underscore group. And we'll see you on the next one. 118, my family, I love them. I can't copy. I can't copy. I love them. We got crews coming.